Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're looking into the role of genre emulation in role-playing games. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? It's that time again when we're asking for submissions for articles for the Blasphemous Tome. If you have any pieces of writing, up to 500 words, or black and white artwork, please send them to us at submissions at blasphemoustomes.com. The tome is filling up fast. We're, I think, pretty much already at capacity. But if it turns out that we can't fit whatever it is you send us into this issue, we will certainly tuck it behind our ear for later, because, as you've probably noticed, we're now putting out two of these things a year. And Paul, I hear you've been appearing in other parts of the internet, yes? Yeah, I was on, invited onto another podcast, the Frankenstein's RPG Podcast. Each one of the episodes, they look at various aspects of role-playing games, like, say, combat or resources or setting. And this time, indeed, it was about setting and GM advice. And uh, they have a bunch of guests on, and everybody puts forward their examples of games that they think that deal with that thing well, and just talk about that a little. And then there's a vote. The idea being that at the end, in a kind of Frankenstein way, they could put all these elements together to make the best fantasy role-playing game ever made. And does your role-playing game then rise up against you and kill you at the very end? Yeah, it walks off into the snowy wastes and you never see it again. Someone obligatorily has to shout, It's alive! And now on to the main topic, genre emulation in RPGs. I think it's fair to say that most RPGs are inspired by genre fiction. But does this mean that they're the same thing? Do RPGs actually model their influences well, or are they completely separate things? Should they even try to emulate genre fiction? And how do these matters inform what we ourselves do at the gaming table? I'd challenge what you said already, Scott, because I'm not sure that most RPGs are inspired by fiction. We'll get into that. But I think, first of all, let's try to define our terms a bit. Yeah, totally. What do we mean by genre emulation? I'm interested in that. I think it's one of these things where we can probably come up with our own idiosyncratic definitions. For me, it's very much about trying to capture the feeling of either a particular genre or very often a particular fictional universe or particular author's work or a particular television show, film, something like that. So it can be quite a broad thing, it can be quite a narrow thing. What complicates this, or the more I'd say, is just the difficulty in defining genre. I think we've mentioned before, when we talked about our Appeal of Horror episode, how difficult it is pinning down just what horror is. I think it's the same with science fiction, fantasy, the genres bleed into each other. But regardless of how you try to define or pin down specifics of genre, I think we still recognise certain genres when we see them, and there are going to be certain tropes and certain ideas that we pick up on, and then these feed into our games. And so it's just a question of, I think, looking at what that relationship is like and the influence and how that goes into and shapes the games we play. 
because it does seem to me, you know, are you talking like fantasy is a genre, but we're not really talking about fantasy. We're talking about Fritz Lieber or we're talking about, yeah, Moorcock or Tolkien or, or whoever. Do you mean genre or particular works? Maybe I'm splitting hairs, but it seems like a like a sub-sub-genre. It's, it's, you know, we're trying to do Middle Earth or we're trying to do Hyboria or... It's both, because you've got games that attempt to have very wide focuses. You have games that attempt to have very narrow focuses. And some attempt to be general fantasy games. Some might emulate the works of a particular Mm. writer. Some may attempt somewhere in between, like being sword and sorcery. But they're all attempting to emulate a genre. It's just that genre is such a fluid and dynamic term that even trying to pin that down is tricky. Yeah, so games that try to emulate somebody else's creation? Is that fair to put it like that? I think so, but... Well, we're talking about somebody else's creation. Even then, that can be quite quite a broad thing because, I mean, say the Cthulhu mythos, that's something that is someone else's creation, but it's lots of different people's creation Hmm. and has evolved and changed over time. Sword and sorcery, if you pin it down, is one person's creation, really, Robert E. Howard's. But again, it has evolved over time and turned into other things. Hmm. I'd lump together genre, subgenre, and for the purposes of this discussion, as the same thing. It can be as narrow or as broad as you want it to be, because ultimately it's they're still trying to achieve the same thing. It's whether the focus is wide or narrow. And quite a lot of games try to do this through licensed properties. I suppose part of the rationale for that is not only they want to focus on that property, but it's a marketing thing as well. So you yeah. know, the Star Wars role-playing game, people immediately know what that is. Yeah, I'd say, well, there's two drivers for that. One is very much, as you say, the commercial one, that licensed games probably do sell... Well, I'm not sure that they necessarily sell better, but they have an inbuilt marketing hook. They have an inbuilt audience. So there's that. But there's also the fact that for that audience, there's the excitement of living their own vicarious adventures inside that world that they love so much. So I think the appeal there is from both ends. The recent Avatar Kickstarter probably proves a certain degree of that, having a wide inbuilt audience. (laughs) Yeah, I remember hearing a little bit about that in passing. I didn't really follow it too closely. $10 million it made on Kickstarter. Fucking hell. By far the most runaway success of an RPG on Kickstarter to date. And I can see Paul looking puzzled. This isn't the James Cameron avatar. It's not the film, is it? No, just plenty of anime. Right. Yeah. I don't really know what that is, but... (laughs) (laughs) just me. I I know it exists, and I know apparently there was a very bad M. Night Shyamalan attempt at adapting it, but even then people people complained, that ain't avatar, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But I'd say that licensed games are like a hyper-focused example of genre emulation, in that you're not just trying to capture specific tropes of the genre, a particular feeling, but you're also trying to pin down specifics of how, say if it's a, a science fiction game, you're trying to pin down specifics of how the technology works. Or if it's a fantasy game, you're trying to perhaps emulate a magic system. And so, you know, as a result, it's it's perhaps much more specifically shaped by source material than something that's merely trying to reflect a, a wider genre. And I would say more 
on the surface even than that is it gives you the the setting like the map with the names of the places mm. on it and the characters you might meet not necessarily the ones you're going to play you may play canon characters from that license or you may i think more usually create your own characters but you may well then meet some of those characters that you've seen either on the page or on the screen there's a lot of appeal to that i think certainly if people have if they're all fans of that thing then it's pretty quick to get everybody on the same page whereas perhaps that might be more of a challenge for the games i mean you know it's got that maybe licensed games don't sell as well some do some don't but obviously the biggest role-playing game dungeons and dragons isn't a licensed property mm. isn't you know based on a, a particular fiction but then again call of cthulhu is one of the biggest ones as well not not as big as D, but that is a licensed game so there's obviously you know, a lot of scope for licensed games being successful i agree it is a licensed game but i think there's a lot of difference between if we take call of cthulhu as a licensed game to taking i don't know buffy the vampire as yeah. a licensed game say or you know middle earth or something like that i think they're very different what they are based on in the uh, specificity of it is very different yeah there's i'd say a lot less canon in the cthulhu mythos well there is and there isn't there's a lot of canon in for example, the specifics of gods and monsters and spells and books and so on. But in terms of a carefully constructed history and the way these things interlock and so on, that is very much there. And say things like Middle Earth or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it really isn't in most mythos work. Hmm. We're talking very much about genre in RPGs here. But are there any particular genres that you think rpgs are particularly bad at because I mean, obviously the whole thing came out of DD, so we tend to associate rpgs with fantasy and then by extension with genre fiction i'd say at least 90 percent of rpgs must be some form of fantasy science fiction or horror anything outside that is is really quite rare and notable it's not that they don't exist it's just that they're a not very common b not very popular in comparison for a start why do you think that is and what genres do you think are badly served by RPGs? I think anything where it has a limited cast of characters can suffer a bit. This is something I've, I've found when I was thinking back to what kind of licensed games have I played and what have I enjoyed and what I haven't. And I remember the likes of... I'm probably going to get this wrong because I think there's different iterations of it, but it was one of the Marvel superhero games from way back in the day. And you effectively played the characters as they appeared in the comics. Yeah. And to me, that's, well, I've never read them. I've hardly seen any of the films. I have absolutely no idea or frame of reference on what I'm supposed to be doing here. What the hell? And it kind of fell flat and there wasn't really any kind of guidance. There wasn't really any room, if I felt, for me as a player to breathe life into a character that I wanted to play and that I wanted to create. It was more like, no, you've been given this part. Here's the script. Go for it. I think, well, that's that's not fun for me. I think there are a few things worse than being in a game which is very i mean i guess it doesn't have to be a licensed property but but is emulating something which everybody else is really a fan of and loves and knows inside out and you don't know it's like well how can you interact with this it's, mm -hmm. it's basically like it's being with a bunch of people talking about football and you've got no interest in football it's, it's kind of on that level to me it's like well i i can't really engage with this because i don't know anything about it you've described every day at work for me while i was in the office yeah <laughs> 
so I mean I've just finished watching um, Seinfeld and I would say I love the show but partly I don't really have any motivation to emulate that in a role-playing game but equally I think comedy is really hard to do in role-playing games I think it's easy to have fun and laugh your ass off playing role-playing games but they're usually horror games or fantasy and it's just it, the, the comedy just naturally comes from the most sometimes the darkest or most bizarre things people do yeah. or dice rolls or whatever aiming to make a comedy game it's like saying to a comedian well tell me a joke then you're funny are you and i think also games with no supernatural and no action sorry not games genres or works that uh, don't have any supernatural element and they don't have any combat or sort of action scenes. And I'm thinking, you know, like sitcoms, say, typically. I was mm. going to say soap operas, but soap operas very often have fisticuffs and, yeah. and so on. To be honest, there aren't that many TV shows that don't have any action. I was thinking like courtroom dramas and stuff, but often, you know, there'll be fistfights or whatever, or there'll be some action. You know, action is a sort of staple of TV and movies and fiction. And I can remember at the club us trying to play a game. I think it might have been PTA and um, somebody suggested we do one without any supernatural and everybody was just kind of left scratching their head and sort of looking at each other and sort of, well, we could do this. And everybody was like, oh, not really. Golden Girls, the RPG. There you go. That's yeah. it. Yeah. I'd argue that that actually represents a failure of imagination because RPGs fundamentally, I think, model conflict that they are about conflict between characters, conflicts with their environment, conflict with themselves, but they are fundamentally about conflict, and that's the same as drama. I think you can perfectly easily reflect that in an RPG. I think it just becomes difficult in that most people who play RPGs have grown up with genre fiction, and these are the tropes, these are the ideas, these are the ways of relating to these ideas of conflict that they're most familiar with. So they're the formulae that they fall back into. I don't necessarily see that it's any easier to play, say, a Lord of the Rings RPG than it would be to play, say, a Wuthering Heights one. I mean, there even is a Wuthering Heights RPG, but that's another story. It's just that if you're more familiar with Lord of the Rings and more familiar with fantasy, then obviously that's the way you're going to see these things playing out. I'd counter it to say that it's a lack of imagination, but I'd, I'd probably go on a tangent from that and say it's a lack of enjoyment. That I think people tend to maybe get a bit more enjoyment from things that have that slightly more fantastical element. Like for, for me mm. personally, one of the main reasons that I play RPGs is I want to escape from reality. If I wanted a game very grounded in reality, that is the complete antithesis of why I'd be sitting at the game table. Mm. That's a personal preference. That's not a limitation mm. of RPGs, which is what we were talking about. But you're exactly the same with the media you consume. You don't like realistic media. That doesn't mean that realistic RPGs or non or not even non-genre, but RPGs that don't fall within fantastical genres are any more impossible than, say, television dramas, films, or novels that don't fall within them. 
No, I was going back to that point of what Paul was saying about people are scratching their head trying to think of what can we do as a non-supernatural game. It's kind of maybe it's not that they can't think of such things, but it's more like, well, can we think of something in there that we'd actually enjoy to play? So as I was countering it by saying it's not necessarily a failure of imagination, it's a failure of trying to find something within that particular style of gaming that they might like or might not like. Hmm. That still comes down to personal preferences rather than anything innate to the genre. No, I think it is innate in the genre. I think I think it's much harder to do those things. You know, fantasy, okay, well, uh, you listen at the door, you can hear something, you open the door, there's half a dozen goblins, draw your swords. That's a very easy thing to game into. Equally, you're in a spaceship and another spaceship shooting at you. There's action, you know, there's a ghost or whatever. Those sort of things, I think, trigger very quick reactions, whereas... The more mundane situations without those elements, without that kind of in-your-face action or without that in-your-face sort of supernatural elements, definitely you can have art like that. And, and, you know, I'm a fan of that stuff as well. But I think that's much harder for people to engage with in a role-playing game um, because it's not a skilled author who's putting words into their mouths and creating drama you've got to do it from scratch. And I think that's a lot more demanding. There's certainly something to that. But at the same time, we've all had that experience, I'd say, in Call of Cthulhu, for example, of having those sessions where nothing weird or supernatural is happening, where you have character interactions and perhaps a bit of intrigue. But for perhaps several sessions in a row, there's nothing that is necessarily identifying this as being genre fiction. Mm. And that's perfectly playable i don't see any reason why you have to introduce those fantastical elements if you're having so much fun doing that i'm i'm saying this as someone who's got the same preferences as you i'd much prefer to play a game of call of cthulhu with gribbly monsters Mm, mm. but i don't see any reason why you couldn't just play it as straight character drama or intrigue or a mystery or something like that to me, the difference is that, yeah, we're having those sessions. And yeah, like you said, we've all had those Call of Cthulhu sessions where we don't have any action. Maybe we don't even roll any dice. We're just role-playing back and forth. But I think the thing is, we know that the framework is that those things are out there and they probably are impinging on the drama that's happening between the characters. You know, if that stuff wasn't out there, would that drama be taking place, I guess, would be my question. I don't know. I'm not saying it can't be done, Scott. I'm just saying I think it's a it's a harder ask. But I'd say it's a harder sell because of the preferences of the players rather than because of anything innate in the genre. I do think that there are certain genres that are much more difficult to pull off. I mean, if you think about the things that are popular on television, for example, you know, say medical and legal dramas, I'd really struggle to do something like that at the gaming table mm. because they rely an awful lot on technical knowledge and jargon and so on that would not come easily to me either as a player or a gm i'm sure you could fudge all of that stuff but then you know that would start creating problems with verisimilitude it would i mean how would a game of um the finance be mad about accountancy (laughs) you know all about that stuff would it be interesting to play funnily enough (laughs) <laughs> one of my scenarios does actually revolve around having the accountancy giving you the biggest clue in the game and explaining the enemy's underlying goal because it all revolves around how the Wall Street crash was engineered and that does revolve around a lot of finance. 
But I'm guessing there's also some supernatural in there. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> what if you rubbed all that out and there was no supernatural? It'd be probably more somewhere on the lines of almost like an espionage game mm. that I could see you almost doing something like a, not like a spy thriller, but definitely more like corporate espionage. So you have different companies all going each other in covert ways, trying to sabotage each other, and that you could, using the uh, the Woodward and Bernstein analogy, follow the money to work out who's doing what. Mm. So you could do a an intrigue-style game in the world of finance quite easily, something maybe replicating like all the president's men, for example, mm. or going into something a bit more... Uh, it's, it's a show I've heard of but haven't seen, but I think Millions has a... Yeah. A similar kind of tone about different uh, high finance or high wealth groups going at each other. Yeah, about the SEC investigating them. Mm. Yeah. It strikes me as well that you're perhaps in a better position, Paul, to talk about this than most of us because you're at the moment working on Rivers of London, which at its heart is a police procedural. One of the things that I really liked about the books was the fact that it does involve a lot of quite often technical information or at least specific information about the way that the police service operates in the UK and the limitations that are placed upon them and how they have to proceed with investigations and gather evidence and stuff like that, which is specialist knowledge that the player characters would have to have. So how does that work into the game? How much are the the players expected to know all this stuff? Is there a sort of briefing that they have to have? Not too much. I think most of us have watched enough of that kind of thing on TV to have absorbed a gloss of that sort of feel of police procedural stuff. Mm. So that would be presented through the the individual scenarios and so on. To some degree, yeah, that's sort of treated through the, the types of player characters and the, the skills and so on in the game. So I think as with most games, a bit like you were sort of saying about, you know, you don't know about law or finance necessarily or things like that in the game a lot of that is kind of referred to but you're not necessarily getting to the crunchy details i guess i just find it easy to play bad cop yell stop or i'll shoot at you again yeah that solves any procedural aspect apart from maybe trying to kill the internal affairs that come after you a bit more difficult if you're playing british cops yeah talking of rivers london they're like chapters about the setting and so on to sort of give the gm a briefing on that but I guess, you know, you, you talk about the books, Scott, the Rivers London books. I mean, yes, they are police procedural, but they're not really gritty police procedural. No, but they do bring in a lot of detail about the way that the police services operate. A lot of things that, certainly as I was reading them, I didn't realise, I can't remember the specifics now, but a lot of the limitations that the police operate under in the course of their investigations and the lines that they can't cross and so mm. on and the bureaucracy that's associated with keeping them in check that quite often plays a significant role in the stories which as a player at the table i wouldn't have a clue about no i think ben aronovich has obviously researched those kind of things and talked to mm. police officers and so on and got a, a feel for that and is able to replicate those procedures in the fiction to give it a feeling of, of reality. I think when we're at the table, as we do in, in other games, we would run up against something that we're perhaps not sure about and just hand wave it or sort of make it up on the fly. Obviously, there will be things in the text that will support that, but you don't necessarily want to be 
checking the rules or the the resources during mid-play, I guess. You talked a little bit there about explaining the setting and the assumptions that the players might be operating under and their characters might be operating under. What about the roles that mechanics play in emulating a genre? How do you think mechanics shape that? There's a couple of examples I can think of where I remember the mechanics do complement or encourage a particular style of play. First one being the Dying Earth RPG, based on the works of Jack Vance, Mm. that it very much encourages the players to emulate the high, convoluted, very long sentences where it takes you a good degree of breath training to be able to get through to the end of them without having to fall down blue on the floor. (gasps) That kind of thing where it's very much trying to replicate the manner in which Vance wrote either his descriptions or his characters' interactions with one another. It wasn't the descriptions, it was very much emulating the kind of dialogue, particularly mm-hmm. that Google came out with being a sort of very roguish bullshit merchant. Yes, I can't remember the exact mechanic involved, but I remember it did very much encourage you to do that for some kind of mechanical effect. Mm. And the other one that really springs to mind, one of my personal favourites, Deadlands, because it involves having poker chips and cards being as part of the mechanics of how to do certain actions or spells, for example. And again, it very much evokes that feeling of the Old West, like having, well, hopefully not being Wild Bill with Dead Man's Hand. You don't want to be on the receiving end of that. Yeah, that's a very good example that I hadn't really considered. I mean, in Call of Cthulhu, we have handouts, even if it's just like a 1920s emulation of a telegram, Mm. you actually get it in your hand. It's going to affect some people more than others, but that thing of having a a physical item like poker chips or like the telegram, I think does help to put you into that world. And if we're talking about emulating something, I think we're talking about putting ourselves into that world. This may be a little different, but... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'd say it's at least tangentially related. Hmm. Another one as well which comes to mind is the Doctor Who RPG, uh, the more recent one put out by Cubicle 7, because it puts an emphasis on when certain actions occur in the round, which again very much emulates and describes how things go down in the show. People that try to talk out a problem or run away from a combat go first before the bullets start flying, or Daleks start screaming exterminate. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really great example of mechanics shaping a genre. That's one I'd picked out myself. (laughs) I mean, I think one of the most basic things, how easy you die, is a big deal in role-playing games. So in Pulp Cthulhu, it's pretty hard to be killed, particularly if you've got 30 luck or more. You can spend 30 luck points, and whatever it was was going to kill you, next scene you pop up and you explain why you, how you survived falling into the propellers of that uh, aeroplane or whatever it was. You know, you, So you're not unkillable, but as long as you've got the luck, you kind of are unkillable. Once you're under 30 luck, then you know, you're vulnerable. So that's a resource choice that you make in the game. Whereas compare that to regular Call of Cthulhu, you're much more fragile, as you are in many role-playing games. You were asking about Rivers of London, Scott, and you know we tried to sort of emulate that to some degree in Rivers of London in that you're not unkillable. It's not that difficult to get knocked down or to lose a fight, but it is quite difficult to actually uh, die. From my memory of Rivers of London, there isn't necessarily a lot of death or at least not a lot of death of central characters but there quite often are consequences for example not to get too much into spoiler territory but there's one of the central characters who i think in the first book gets really quite badly maimed Hmm. Hmm. is that something you've tried to model in the game as well yeah that is an aspect 
It's something I was thinking about with Jaws of the Six Serpents, for example. One of the things that Tim Gray did in that, which I really liked, was setting different degrees of consequence for losing conflicts, particularly combats. If you've got a combat that is just really there for colour, let's say that you're having a punch-up in the bazaar ahead of the main adventure, just perhaps introduce the MacGuffin or something like that. At the end of it all, as long as you get a chance to have a breather, you just shrug off all the damage because it's just there for colour. If it's something a bit more serious, you're in pursuit of the MacGuffin, you're in a position where you might get hold of it, but you're there up against the main enemy who's going to try to get it away from you and you're fighting over it. You can get maimed, you can have scars, you can have long-term consequences as a result of that fight, but your character still can't die. But at some point you can say that, yeah, all right, Life and death is on the table here. This is the big climactic scene, so my character could die. And I think that point of deciding when characters can die plays an awful lot into genre emulation. So, for example, if you're playing, say, a teen adventure game modelled on Stranger Things or that kind of genre, you don't necessarily want to have it so the kids can die, because that may upset some of the players at the table it may go against the genre whatever it is they'd want the characters to be imperiled they'd want them to perhaps face consequences but death should never be an option and i know a number of games that play around with that genre do very much that that if your characters get knocked down to zero hit points or whatever it is then yes all right they're taken out of action they suffer consequences but they're never going to die well tales from the loop right does exactly what you're on about with that setting yeah yeah, and I'd say that's that, you know, as you say, Paul, you know, that's a very important part of setting the expectations of that genre. But also, I'd say it's also what you provide mechanics for. So, I mean, let's say that you were devising a Mad Max style RPG. If you didn't put any rules in there for vehicles, it'd be a bit shit, wouldn't it? <laughs> totally. I could just imagine them all running around in the outback or uh, getting on bikes. <laughs> what push bikes, you mean? Unicycles. Yeah unicycles with blades coming off yeah i want to play that game now but also i'd say reward mechanics also play a big role in this so we talked about dead of night a while back i'd say that's a great example of that where you have this mechanic that's built into it with survival points which are refreshed by your characters basically behaving like characters in a horror film. So the lights go out in the house. It's, all right, well, I'm going to grab the flashlight and go down to the cellar on my own to reset the fuse. Okay, have a survival point. The closest I was thinking immediately was fan mail from Primetime Adventures, but it's that's not specifically related to a yeah. genre. That's more just making everyone around the table laugh or doing something fun. But I suppose you could argue that if they're doing something like that that's fun it could well be something that is part of the genre and then it gets that positive reaction out of the other players yeah so thinking of monster hearts one of the things that happens in that is if your character would be killed one of the things you can choose to do is to embrace your dark half it's not necessarily just a result of potential death there are other things that can trigger this depending on your character you know if you're a werewolf or a vampire or whatever it is you are your dark half is kind of defined and it's almost like you're playing a, you know you're playing the vampire the, you're you're suddenly the monster if you like there are things in the rules that sort of define how to play that and it's it's only for a limited period 
but that is you and you're almost playing against the character you wanted to play which I think, you know, given that Monster Hearts kind of emulates Buffy, perhaps would mm. be one, one good example. That exact same thing happens in Buffy. You know, we see it with um, Spike, we see it with Angel, we see it with Buffy as well. Uh, we see it with Willow, we see it with pretty much all of them. At some point, they turn dark, you know, and evil and fight against the rest of the crew. Embrace your inner Bella Lugosi for a few rounds. Oh, not just for a few rounds, until a condition happens that snaps you out of it. So it can actually generate an entire story arc as the rest of the characters are trying to basically talk you down from this fantastically self-destructive rut you've got yourself into. Hmm. I do remember a game that our good friend Tony Parry ran, uh, I think it was the UK Games Expo, several years ago trying to emulate a very specific genre. It was a Savage Worlds game in the Blake 7 universe, where we were all playing the crew of the Liberator. So that was a case of, you really have to know the show and you really have to uh, know the setting and such to really kind of get your teeth into it. But everyone around the table did. It was one of the reasons why we, we all got to play. But one of the things that Tony put on there was that if you managed to get in a quote from the show from your character, then you could get a Benny. And, well, Villa and Avon, that's so bloody easy because they had the best lines. <laughs> yes. And that's quite a cool mechanic too, but it's only going to work for quite a niche audience. Yes, very true. <laughs> that's the point, and I guess this is one of the problems with trying to emulate genre, which is it needs the buy-in or the enthusiasm of everyone at the table. Mm. So when I've tried running sword and sorcery games before, I've had real trouble sometimes just getting the players on the same page as the expectations that I'm laying down because they aren't necessarily as familiar with the genre as I am, and you know, they're perhaps seeing it as being D&D or something else. It's a question of how you communicate that. And I've never really come up with a good solution to that. I mean, obviously the simplest solution is make sure you're playing with people who are like-minded, but that doesn't always work out. So, for example, if I've run stuff at the club before, I, I mean, have you ever had the experience of trying to run something specific you know, for a group of people and there's just one person or a couple of people at the table who just don't get it? I know that person's normally you, Paul, yeah. but, but when you're running stuff, do you ever have that experience? I have had it before. Yeah, I remember uh, it was at a, one of the student nationals conventions I don't know why the player had signed up to play a horror game, but they seemed completely disinterested in it, and I managed to get five words out of her in about six hours. Mm. Mm. Some players just they end up in a game and it's like, no, I don't like this. And it's then if they've been either pigeonholed or allocated to a particular game, it's like, well, I can't really go anywhere else because there's no other games, they're all full. And they've all got their allocated players, so I'm just going to sit here and do nothing, which for a GM is kind of painful. I mean, is this a fault of the, the game and the emulation of the genre? This is players who don't really buy into the genre, right? Well, no, it's the difficulty of communicating a set of expectations of being on the same page with the genre. I know, for example, that there are, yeah, I love running fairly serious horror games. All right, every now and then there will be laughter in them. But I like trying to, on occasion, run you know, really quite deathly serious games. I know there are, there are a couple of people I've gamed with regularly over the years who I will never, ever be able to have in one of those games and not have them ruin it for me. They're people I like, they're people I enjoy gaming with in other circumstances, but one will, for example, just automatically default to comedy, start putting in very pulpy actions, absurdist stuff and so on, and just completely destroy the tone of the game. 
So when stuff like that happens, I mean, do you just write it off as a bad job? Do you do you adjust your expectations and give up on trying to emulate what you were doing? I think that's very much you. You kind of know your audience and you know what type of game you want to run and if mm-hmm. as you said you've got player a and player b that don't fit that kind of mold then as much as you'd like to run that stuff you know it isn't going to work save it for a convention or save it for some other audience i'd say it's even harder at a convention because not only do you not know the players you're going to get but you've got a very limited time in which to set those expectations mm-hmm. you can't have a session zero with them you could advocate using things like sign up or if there are sign up sheets or pre signing before game on a web form or whatever. You can very much lay that groundwork to say this is the type of game that's going to be run, this is the, uh, the type of style that is being played, and really state it from the outset. Do not put your name down if you're not, this is not your thing. How about you, Paul? I mean, how do you try to communicate the style of play, the genre, the tone, the feeling that you want the game to be? Or do you not worry about that ahead of time? I don't want to sound too pretentious, but it's a bit like surfing. You go out, you can't make the sea do what you want it to do. You just have to ride the waves. <laughs> That's deep, isn't it? Uh, I just came up with that. That's genius. I'm going to have to write that down. I see myself as more of a canute. <laughs> yes, I've always thought of you as a total canute, Scott. <laughs> you know, I think, I think it is the job of the GM, particularly at a convention, never more so than at, than at a convention. If it's your home group, this is different, but particularly at a convention... You have to go with what the table wants to do. It's not your job to tell the players how to play their characters. It's your job to accommodate how they want to play those characters. So if it's a very divided table and you've got one person who's being a dick, then, yeah, obviously this is a bit of a different thing now. We're talking about you know tone and we're talking about managing the group and sort of stopping and saying, you know, is this the kind of game that everybody wants to play? But on the whole... Yeah, people might be rowing in slightly different directions, but as the GM, you're kind of in, I don't know, in control of the rudder, in control of where it's going to some degree. I don't know if that analogy is breaking down now. But you've kind of got to go with what your players want to do. And if they want to play a bit of a gonzo, silly game and make lots of jokes, then you know, you've got to bounce off that and, and accommodate for that. And if they want to play it deadly seriously and get grim and gritty with it, then that too. Reminds me of a very niche analogy. I used to be in a sailing club when I was in sixth form at school. I was a rudder one time. <laughs> you were the rudder? Yeah. You were managing the no, rudder? No, no, I was the rudder. Um, our rudder broke. Okay. It wasn't uh, turning anymore, so we just unhooked it. <laughs> I jumped off the side of the boat and basically angled my legs in the water to turn the boat where we needed to. How many points did you put in that? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, has, it has not had a chance for skill improvement in a very long time. <laughs> right, okay. That, I'd say, is a very specialised application of pilot boat. It's more (laughs) B-boat. We've talked a bit about how games might try to emulate genre and what some of the pitfalls might be, but I guess there is a broader question there of whether games should try to emulate genres. Well, more to the point, how much Mm. they should try to emulate the things that inspire them. This is my issue all along, really, and this is where I sort of started with you opening statement that that most role-playing games are based on some sort of I mean, they're based on a genre, but are they based on a work of fiction? And I'd say D&D isn't. I think Gary Gygax, you know, drew up a list of Appendix N of the books he liked and said it was based on this. I don't think it is. I think those were the kind of books Gygax liked. And he's looking at those and drawing bits out of them and mushing them together and making a fun game. I don't think it's 
particularly trying to do those things. I mean, the the old school D and D was you know when Gygax started, a lot of that was dungeon bashing. He sort of says about you know drawing up the first like half dozen levels of your dungeon before you start play and uh, there's all these traps and weird monsters that are very specific to the Dungeons and Dragons world and yeah some of the spells they use names from like Vance's books and so on so he's he's sort of taken elements and just sort of put them in a pot and stirred them up it's not like he's trying to emulate Undying Earth or something you know are we trying to emulate a particular fiction when I'm role-playing I'm not. I mean, I don't think in most of my games, if I'm playing D&D, I want to be down a dungeon fighting monsters. And I don't feel that's any particular work of fiction. If I'm playing Call of Cthulhu, a lot of my scenarios, I would say I'm probably more influenced by Philip K. Dick than, or as much influenced by Philip K. Dick as I am by H.P. Lovecraft. If I could mush the two together, you know, that'd be my aspiration really call it love dick <laughs> i'm sure that's a sex shop somewhere it's not there anymore but there was a sex shop in leicester square called lovecraft yeah i think for me it's going to be if the particular fiction you are emulating has a wide enough universe that allows you to do your own thing in it then all well and good so if you've got the scope of let's say the universe of doctor who because there's been so many stories told and there's so many planets there's so many times it's a big enough canvas where you can do your own thing in it that's great but going back to one example scott said it's like weathering heights it's one book with a very specific storyline that's set in one place that's going to get real samey real quick. There's only so many times you can do Kate Bush montages in that thing. It hasn't got the breadth to be able to do your own story until it feels like it's the same thing over and over and over again. It's actually one of the problems I have with the Alien RPG, that there's only so many times you can run around in corridors being chased by an alien before it gets to be the same thing over and over and over again. And that's why I don't think that game has particularly much replayability. Unless you start creating your own thing, but then... By creating your own thing that's way outside the confines of the canvas that that universe has laid down, does it really become part of that universe anymore? I'd argue that that's what creative people do anyway. You don't necessarily see it as much in RPGs, or at least not specifically, but let's say the creation of the Cthulhu mythos, that I'd say that that's what happened there, that Lovecraft's stories initially had a comparatively narrow focus and people have broadened that out and taken it in different directions and so on over time, both in fiction and in the Call of Cthulhu RPG and other RPGs. I don't think that doing that in, say, the Alien RPG would be a bad thing because... That's how genre works. It mutates, it it changes, mm. it becomes other things as people get involved with it. I'd wholeheartedly embrace that in terms of fiction, but if you're trying to create a game that is based on a pre-existing fiction and your stuff has no pre-existing foundation, that's where mm. I say, does it get into that uncharted territory of being your own thing and divorcing itself from the setting you're actually trying to use? So fiction I wholeheartedly embrace. I love when people expand stuff and make their own thing. But I think in doing it in gaming, it's almost like you have no foundation, you have no basement to the house you're trying to build. I'd really argue with that. I think I've made this point in the podcast before. You know, I've always felt a bit frustrated that RPGs feel subservient to fiction in that respect. That fiction is expected to create our worlds, to lay the groundwork for us. And then, as you say, that you know, when you've got an RPG that taps into that fiction, that that then 
operates within those confines that we wait for the fiction writers to expand the world before we can play in it. And I think that's bullshit. No, I think what Matt's saying is that if you're like Alien, yeah, you could expand that and say, okay, well, actually, the Alien universe, there are going to be planets where that haven't had spacecraft yet. So let's play a bunch of cavemen on one of those worlds and they're going down underground fighting monsters. Well, that's not alien, is it? Yeah, that's that's It's in the alien universe. Mm. I'm taking an extreme Mm. example. If somebody comes to your table and you've said you're going to run a game of alien and you run it and run that Mm. for them, they're not going to say, oh, you're a creative genius. They're going to say you're a dick. In that kind of instance where I'd be trying to create my own thing within a pre-existing universe... I would want to put some kind of links into the existing material, such as maybe, yeah, you have your cavemen that are living underground or going beating up monsters, and maybe down in a cave, way, way down deep, they maybe find the remains of an engineer spacecraft or one of their black goo bioweapon type things from either Covenant or um, Prometheus. But as long as there's hooks in there that firmly ground you as saying, this is part of the universe that you as a player know Mm. and potentially expect to see in games like that then it could work without any of those links as you say what what the hell are we playing cavemen for this is what 10,000 bc the rpg not not alien i'd like to go back to your example of doctor who's mac or i'd like to draw a distinction between emulating doctor who because like you said doctor who you've literally got all the time and space to, to fly around in in your tardis but you're in your tardis right i think it's inherent in the game it's going to be a Doctor, there's going to be a TARDIS, there's going to be companions, uh, or am I wrong? I think there are examples of where you could potentially play it outside of that, where if potentially if you wanted to play members of Unit, for example, or mm-hmm. if my personal favourite way of playing it, if I ever got the chance to write anything for it, would be members of the CIA, the Celestial Interventions Agency, because they only turned up in a couple of stories, but they're effectively a faction of Time Lords that do interfere. Okay. In my mind, I'm sort of comparing that with playing, say, a game set in the Star Wars universe or even like Lord of the Rings world, uh, Middle-earth, because both of those stories are about a lot of different peoples from different planets or different parts of Middle-earth, you know, from different ages, perhaps. There's a a big history as well to draw from. If it was Middle-earth, you could be a bunch of hobbits just in the Shire and and the Old Forest or so on, or you could be in Minas Tirith. Or, you know, if it's Star Wars, you could be Jedi going off doing something. You could just be, you know, in the uh, Mos Eisley Cantina. So there's a whole universe of stuff. It definitely defines a whole cast of different characters you could play, but it doesn't narrowly define them, I think, as much as... I thought that the Doctor Who one did. Uh, and, and like going with the Alien one as well, you know, playing Alien, typically, like you said, Matt, it's going to be like Alien, you know, the Alien ship and, and, and that story. Whereas Star Wars, it seems to me, there's, there's a lot more breadth, I guess, in some works of fiction, in some genres, there's a lot more breadth of what you can do with it than there is in other ones which seem a narrower focus of fiction. You know, you've actually given me an idea now. I know someone who's been wanting to play a Star Wars RPG for a long time, and I've been thinking, this isn't a game I could potentially do or run. But when you say the cantina, that gives me like an idea of Casablanca. How <laughs> it set round that cantina in Mos Eisley and play it as a kind of Star Wars Casablanca pastiche. Of all the hives of scum and villainy in all the galaxy, <laughs> she had to walk into this one. 
One thing as well that sort of muddies the water a bit with emulating genre, particularly in fantasy, but I see this happens as well in horror and science fiction, is that now that RPGs have been around for 50 years, they're now beginning to feed back into an informed fiction, or not beginning to, have been for a long time. I remember mm. back in the 80s when TSR started publishing fiction, there was a, a review Dave Langford put into White Dwarf where he was quite scathing about the first publications. What was it? The tagline was something like, fantasy brought to you by people who know fantasy best. And Langford summed it up as something like, um, countryside brought to you by people who know strip mining best. <laughs> I think there has been a transformation in a lot of genres because of people who've grown up playing RPGs, playing with genre conventions, picking up the new weird genre conventions that, say, D&D has created through play, and those now feeding back into the fiction. I'm not sure which ones you're thinking of, Scott, but I mean, certainly like um, Game of Thrones, didn't R.R. Uh, Martin play D&D? So the Dresden Files as well. I'm not sure Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire is a particularly good example here because, I mean, it's been a while since I read about this, but I seem to remember that George R.R. R. Martin developed the Westeros setting as part of a GURPS campaign he played years before. But I don't think that the stories themselves are particularly related to that again i could be wrong probably a better example if you're looking at george rr R. martin is the wildcard series which was this superhero series of short stories uh, of anthologies by various different authors that came out of a superworld game the chaosium superworld system that George R. R. Martin and a number of other science fiction writers have been playing together. And yes, they did spin that out into, well, really quite a long-running series of books. And I think there's been talk for some time of that perhaps finding its way onto television, but it's probably one of these projects that's just fizzled out. There's an even weirder aspect of it which has come up in the last 10 years or so, which um, I'm, I'm less familiar with. I've, I've not actually read any. I'm just aware of its existence, which is Lit RPG. Have, have either of you come across this? It, it is basically a genre of fiction that takes the tropes of RPGs and bakes them into the fiction so that you have characters in them, say, in a, a Dungeons & Dragons-type fantasy game, who are sort of implicitly and sometimes explicitly interfacing with game mechanics as part of the fiction in the story. Okay, that sounds strange, but the world is full of strange things. That's fine. Sorry, if I can just bounce off the one that I do know, which is the George R. R. Martin one. If we're saying, oh, he was inspired by d and I don't think that's a very strong argument, because Game of Thrones isn't D&D, is it? You could maybe argue oh, I could play it with D&D. Well, fine, but it's not it doesn't what watching Game of Thrones didn't make me think all oh, this is just like D&D, you know. Well, and also even where you do get writers who are inspired by the games they've played or run, famously Raymond D. Feist's Rift War series was based on his D&D slash Techumel game, and he, he spun all that out. But even where you do have that, they don't tend to be 
transcriptions of what happened. It's more questions of reusing ideas and setting and turning them into something that works in fiction. When I interviewed Adrian Tchaikovsky, for example, he talked about how his Shadows of the App series was based in a world that he created for an RPG when he was at university. But I don't think that means that the stories are reflections of what happened to that game, because I think usually what happens at the gaming table, if you transcribe it, makes for pretty shit fiction. Yeah, because I think it's a role-playing game and a book are two totally different things. I don't try and emulate works of fiction. I don't try and make a scenario like a Lovecraft story. I don't see the appeal of doing that particularly. I'm influenced by Lovecraft and the elements in his stories and the kind of feel of that, but I'm not trying to make a Lovecraft story, you know, into a scenario. Even if I were to take a Lovecraft story and base a scenario on it, I'd probably do the fallout from after that story finished or the setup from before that began. But I know it's going to go totally different to how it would be on the page because Lovecraft's use of language and narrative and everything is going to be totally different. And also his characters are so passive, yeah. they observe as mostly of events, that that would be really dull to play. When I think of other things that have transferred from one media to another, it really struck me a long time ago when I was getting into, say, Monty Python or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. All those things transferred from one medium to another. So Hitchhiker's Guide went from a radio play to novels, to a stage play I saw, to television, uh, never a film. <laughs> but in each one of those, it was you could see, oh, this is pretty much the same thing. Oh, they're doing something different here. you know. And it was yeah. changed in a way that made best use of the medium. That's how we deal with role-playing games. If you want to read a story, go read the story. If you want to play a game, that's a different thing. But I think we should just pay tribute to how cunning they were with trying to fit all that material from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy into a film script by cutting out all the jokes. As long as you do that, you've got plenty of time to actually tell the story. Well, you don't need jokes in a comedy, do you? No, clearly. For me, I think I don't try to emulate particular stories. What I'd rather do is just borrow elements from them, whether it be mm. like individual moments or ideas or visuals, that kind of thing. I wouldn't try to take like the whole story for example and try and weave that into something that's that way madness lies i was going to say i kind of like analogies and i've always thought of role-playing games a bit like recipes you're given the ingredients at the table you're going to mix it all up and make something that's great but everybody will sort of cook it a bit differently it's like if i give you the same recipe to 10 different people if it's a cake it they're all going to be different right they're all going to be similar but even if they followed the recipe to the tea there are going to be quite significant differences mine's got to be something i bought at the co-op and then just an apology for for not baking it <laughs> <laughs> but i mean how well are let's take indian and chinese food cultures emulated in the average british household in name only i think but we've taken elements from those things and they're both great things that have enriched our food culture beyond all recognition fantastically i make a what i call a curry it's a jamie oliver chicken tikka masala recipe i don't think it's like an authentic indian curry like people would eat in india well if it's chicken tikka masala it's definitely not because that was invented in the uk <laughs> that's true birmingham cuisine that is i think it was glasgow actually Oh, okay. But that's my point. I've sort of taken Lovecraft, the bits from it that I like, and made a dish that I think is tasty, 
But how well does it compare with the original? You've pinned down there as well, I think, a lot of why I don't tend to like licensed RPGs. I tend to like stuff that feels a bit like some of the the films and books and TV programs and comics I like. I like reflecting elements of those and evoking some of the same feelings and perhaps reusing some of the same ideas. But slavishly following someone else's vision of how all this fits together generally doesn't work for me because, with exceptions, I mean, obviously, for example, I like Call of Cthulhu, but generally... I find it much more interesting and much easier to make shit up than remember shit that someone else has made up. Hmm. As a result, that melange approach that you're talking about there, I think works for me much better. I mean, there are licensed games I've enjoyed, but on the whole, I do prefer to make stuff up. Hmm. And if I can just stretch my my food culture uh, (laughs) analogy, I'd say, you know, the different games give you different stuff in your store cupboard. So some games give you flour and yeast and others give you cheese and tomatoes. There are certain things you can do with what you've got in your store cupboard. There are certain things that a game, the elements they give you, does influence the kind of game that you're going to end up with. So if you're playing D&D, like 5th Ed, with all the tactical combat elements and all of the, the huge range of spells and items and all the skills and paths that they can take, all those rules... I think you end up with a very different kind of game to you do if you play a very light kind of OSR-type dungeon-type game. And if you pull Fatal out of your food cupboard, you're going to just end up with botulism. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to everyone. Thank you, first of all, to you. Yes, you for listening to this podcast and we hope other episodes. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, starting off with a thanks to David Wind. It could be David Wind. As always, apologies if we mispronounce your names. Do let us know and we'll give it another shot. And thank you also to R. Thomas Thetford. And thank you very much to the wonderfully named Bernardosaur. And thanks to Seth Wilson. And thank you very much to Joss Garland. And thank you very much to Thomas. And thanks to Silver Twilight Games. And thank you very much to Alistair Smith. And if you are enjoying the podcast, we really would appreciate it if you got the word out there to other people who might enjoy it, whether that's on social media just telling your friends about it, leaving a review on whichever platforms you use. Just get the good word of the good friends out there to unsuspecting ears and we'll do the rest. I want to see more people on street corners just yelling it out. Oh, yeah. Evangelising for the good friends of Jackson Elias. (laughs) Is that bad? I don't know. It's bad in all the right ways, Paul. What more can I aspire to? I don't know. Okay, well, uh, that's uh, enough emulation for today. So uh, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? 
blasphemoustomes.com. Mm-hmm.